Something draws the girl's attention, David Ventures said. The Maverick director paused at the spot along the shore Captain Ken Narlow had indicated. Something was not right. Venture looked down at the rocky ground and the steep slope of the rotting tree as if he had not seen them before. Without a word, he wheeled and walked some distance around to the adjacent peninsula. The retired detectives watched the celebrated filmmaker follow the curve of land and circle to a little inlet on the other bank. His head was down as he took long athletic strides. Suddenly, he knelt and studied the ground. He picked up a fistful of earth, let it drift between his fingers, and watched as the wind carried the reddish particles away. He looked up at the road high above where the victim's car had been found, then looked back at the tree. Next, he tossed a few rocks in the air and gazed to the center of the lake, where it was a couple hundred feet deep. Fincher wondered what other mysteries might be buried there. Further up, underneath the dam at Devil's Creek, Devil's Gate was the narrow point of Putak Creek. Fincher returned from his scouting trip and made an announcement. His voice was confident and clear, ringing out over the lake. The other side of the little island out there is much more vertical than this side, he said. I think that is the actual murder site. Well, let's go over and take a look, Narlo said, and started north with Jamie Vanderbilt. I'm not 100% convinced this is the place. When Narlo reached the other side of the inlet, he clapped a hand to his forehead and then hailed Fincher and the rest of the men across the water. My God, he hollered, I took you to the wrong spot. In that arcane way he had of penetrating to the heart of a riddle, Fincher had discerned the truth. He became quiet as he began working the puzzle of the open taxi door, the blood that should have been elsewhere, a bloody print that belonged to no one, and the shot nobody heard. Welcome to Zodiac Chronicle, a 24-part investigation into David Fincher's 2007 genre-altering masterpiece, Zodiac, adapted from Robert Graysmith's novel, who I could not be more pleased to say provided the introduction for this episode. The novel was adapted for the screen by screenwriter James Vanderbilt, and the film, of course, stars an incredible ensemble cast led by Jake Gyllenhaal, Robert Downey Jr., Anthony Edwards, and Mark Ruffalo. I'm your host, Blake Howard. This is the 19th episode of Zodiac Chronicle, Libra, part one. Now, before we dive into the theme of the week and the show proper, I'd love to remind you to jump on and review the show wherever you're listening. It is genuinely an insanely impactful gesture that you can do for people who want to find podcasts like ours, obsessive cinematic deep dives. I also want to let you know that links to our Patreon with a weekly Rum and Rant podcast and special uncut Zodiac Sessions interviews, as well as links to our merchandise with artwork by the incredible Browner Ashby and Amy Reed, are in the description of the show or at oneheatminute.com. Joining me to rifle through boxes full of crusty documents are Zodiac screenwriter James Vanderbilt. Writer, actor, and star of Zodiac, Donald Loke. Host of the Prog Save America podcast, the creator of A Year with Women and November, Mariah Gates. Los Angeles-based film critic and journalist for the Tribune News Service and Los Angeles Times, part-time lecturer at Chapman University, and of course, the legendary co-host of Miami Nice, Katie Walsh. Former long-running editor of Time Out New York, current Senior editor at Entertainment Weekly, the true believer of Zodiac, the Tosky to my Graysmith, Joshua Rothkopf. Writer and book critic, Bill Ryan. Film critic on sabbatical with bylines at rogerebert.com and the Metaplex, Brendan Hodges. And newcomers to Zodiac Chronicle, host of the Screen Drafts podcast and Vidiot's Trivia, the incredible Clay Keller. Now, last but certainly not least, the guest who read an excerpt from his book, Shooting Zodiac, to open the show. Our next guest is an Eagle Scout first class, former cartoonist at the San Francisco Chronicle, best-selling author of Zodiac, Zodiac Unmasked, and the author of Shooting Zodiac, a chronicle, as it were, of the long journey of the story that defines his career being translated from page to screen, the one and only 
Robert Graysmith. Every episode will use a film title to encapsulate our theme. This sequence of the film sees Graysmith, Jake Gyllenhaal, earn the right to be part of this investigation, tirelessly retracing steps, guided by a weary Dave Tosky, played by Mark Ruffalo. In one moment, Graysmith calls Tosky from a phone booth out front of the San Francisco Town Hall, and it just so happens to be the most overt homage to the film that David Fincher even modelled the running time of Zodiac on. So, it almost feels inevitable that this week's theme has to be All the President's Men. Now as a coping mechanism to recover from the damn shock of Robert Graysmith joining us on this little show, here's Clay Keller to talk about his experience of Zodiac. Well, we talked about this movie like a week ago or two weeks ago on screen drafts. We did the 2007 draft with uh, Dre and Brian, and, and I had such a good time talking about that movie with them. And I knew this was coming up, so I, I saved my rewatch uh, for after that. But I watched it last night for the, I don't know, 10th, 12th, 15th time. And it is, it, it, this is a minor miracle of a movie. Like, there's no other movie like this. There are other, you know, investigation movies. There are other serial killer movies. There are other uh, sort of epic decades spanning uh, historical omnibus cast movies like this but there 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 is no there is no other movie that i can think of that has uh uh is is as it's such an easy watch it lulls you it's got this mood that kind of like lulls you into it and you're just totally on this ride and there's constant comedy and there is constant uh, drama and there is constant just sort of like simmering terror. And it has this incredibly unique, really, really uh, satisfying uh, tone and mood that pulls you through the entire time. And then on top of that, just being, you know, making you feel like you learned something (laughs) and also making you feel like you're participating to some extent. it It is a full experience just beyond being just passively uh, a story or some fun performances or whatever. It is just kind of you, when you throw on Zodiac, you go, you just, you go into Zodiac for an hour and 45 minutes. And, and I didn't, I wasn't, you know, I was, I was taking notes, but you know, it's, it's one of those movies that you just, it, it dares you to lose interest or look at your phone or something. And, and the fact that it's almost three hours long is, I, I, I don't know another movie that there are other movies that can hold your attention for three hours. I don't know if there's another movie that gives you so many things at the same time without ever feeling uh, anything less than totally focused and confident in what it's doing. Like this is, I think on every level, and I'm sure you've, you've heard this from everybody you've had on here, this is just a incredibly unique movie. In our last episode, unpacking this unique minor miracle of a movie We left off Robert Graysmith and Dave Tosky in a cafe. Something about Graysmith has piqued Tosky's interest. And so rather than an immediate deflection, he spells out a name, N-A-R-L-O-W. This is in fact the second time Fincher and his cast had done this scene. It is the first take of their second go at it. And in the first, Mr. Ruffalo had to take four bites out of around 70 burgers. So, filled with that, let's get to this episode scene. I couldn't tell you to go see Ken Darlow in Napa. In A-R-L-O-W. camera tilts down to track cars penetrating the fog surrounding San Francisco's Golden Gate Bridge. 
It's one of the rare moments in Zodiac that an omniscient camera takes a detached topographic view. This pendulous, augmented camera cranes down through the fog of San Francisco and of this case. The heat and the rays of light and the insights are carving through. Before we even move out of this pristine and rare sun glare in Zodiac, we hear the voice of Donald Logue's Ken Nalo, reiterating once again that he doesn't cooperate with writers. It's hard to know whether that's all writers for Mr. Nalo or indeed all writers associated with the frenzy of Zodiac. How many more wild cards could they possibly take at this point in the case? Fincher was looking for a going north shot. And this completely digital rendering was created as an echo to the film's poster. Here's James Vanderbilt talking about the structure of the movie and having the protagonist take action so late in the running time. Fun of this and the structure of the movie that we, we really wanted to do, or I was really interested in doing is, how do you make a movie where your protagonist really doesn't start to be your protagonist till the third act? So yes. we introduce him up front, but he sits on the sidelines for an hour and a half of this movie. Yeah. Um, I think he and Hosky don't meet till 80 minutes in. I mean, so, so there was some, I really liked the idea of seeing how far we could kind of push that sort of structurally. And, and in doing that, give the time to the invest, you know, it's, Ruffalo comes in 20 minutes into the movie and then we're going to spend 20 minutes with Ruffalo and not really go back around to uh, the other character as much. So it was more sort of about like different movements than it was different acts um, in, terms of, in terms of building it. In a lot of ways, uh, you know, Graysmith is kind of looking for someone to be the hero of this story. And yes. first he thinks it's going to be Avery and then he thinks it's going to be Toski and then he thinks it's going to be Avery again. And finally it's like, I guess it's got to be me, you know? And that's what he says to Melanie. It's like, because no one else will do it. That's why I'm doing it. I'm sorry, Mr. Graysmith, but we don't cooperate with writers. Well, I'm not a writer, I'm a cartoonist. And Dave Toski sent you? Yes. Why? Maybe he, maybe he thought that I could do some good. What are you, some kind of Boy Scout? Eagle Scout, actually, first class. The matter-of-fact response from Gyllenhaal's Graysmith is so divine. I'm not a writer, I'm a cartoonist. The delivery is devoid of even a speck of irony, and Donald Logue's passive, apathetic, meet-the-press face draws into a squint like a Muppet. The glazed-over look in his eyes sharpens. There, despite the additional grey hairs, is the man on brand, busting Toski's balls about being betrayed by Avery for a source. There's a wonderful implicit unity around all these figures in the case, Toski, Armstrong, Molinex. Toski's a protective, unspoken club member. And by the permission and grace of one of the members, you're allowed in. I don't know if that sounds familiar to anyone at all. The first rule of Fight Club is, you do not talk about Fight Club. The second rule of Fight Club is, you do not talk about Fight Club. Here's Donald Logue reminiscing about his memories of making the film and the scenes with Jake Gyllenhaal. I like the, I like early take, I'm an, I'm an early taker. You know, there's, there's these hilarious stories where um, some actors are very different. I heard a story about Robert De Niro where he's like, you know, I like to kind of ease into it by take 13, 14. You're like, <laughs> oh man, dude. <laughs> I'm so fried on it by then. Um, you know, I hate it. I start to anticipate. Um, but I, you know, and I also did a lot of, I did pretty short. I remember the whole with Jake in the office and you're, you're an Eagle Scout and the Rick Marshall and all that. I, like we would do 22, 24 takes. And that was by far a record on the low side of things, you know? <laughs> yes, and we, yes. I was joking with David about it. At that time, so as you probably know, Zodiac was the first major movie that was shot on high definition, basically HD video. Yes. And the and it was the camera setup was called the Genesis. And David would sit in Video Village and you do take after take after take and you'd say, delete the last 10, just delete, you know, this, 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 this. <laughs> and it's never, and I understand he just wants 
He's just like, it's not like you're not giving him what he wants. It's just, he's interested in seeing different things. And then he told me one time, but this does, I'm sure this, there's something about, about his style because he told me, he goes one time on a commercial shoot, I did 106 takes of pouring water into a pitcher, you know, <laughs> or pouring a glass of orange juice or something like that. And I'm like, dude, that, that crew must've been going off, but you know, he's such a, he's such a, he's a sweetheart. Are you some kind of boy scout? Eagle scout, actually first class. Well, if you want to do this, don't let me stop you. Better start with Vallejo, Jack Molnix. I understand what you're trying to do. But this is an open police investigation. I'm a friend of Dave Toskey's, and he said that you might be able to help. I mean, the case is dead. Zodiac's long gone. He's yesterday's news, right? That's what they say. So what's the harm? Hands, no paper. Anything that you see that's relevant, you remember in your head. Okay. I love this transition from Nalo's office to Vallejo Police Department for Graysmith. It's almost my favorite moment for Graysmith in the entire film. There's a reassurance in the voice of Elias Cody's Jack Mullinex and a reflexive certainty that he's required to fend off another cloying writer, reporter, journalist, whatever and whoever this person is. However, when Tosky's name is dropped, once again, it instigates a lean forward, a sharpening of focus, a fullness of observation and intention. It's one of the first glimpses of the uncompromising investigative journalist that would have the stones to stare right in the eyes of the man that he believes is Zodiac. Zodiac is yesterday's news, but it's the reverse shot close-up. Suddenly, the circles around the eyes and the lines on the forehead start to reflect the self-neglect that signals an individual with such myopic obsession that he's deprioritized the way he looks. It works. Another seamless transition into the vaults of Vallejo Police Station and the Zodiac Capes files are open for visitation. Fincher calls the next line the funniest of the entire movie. And in fact, it's a line that he credits directly to Gyllenhaal. This improvised moment epitomizes Graysmith's compulsion for truth, especially around authority. Okay, here we go. Which one? All of them. And there's more in the next room. No mark with these numbers. You don't smoke, do you? Once in high school. Thank you. I love the way Cody has clutches at the pens as he plucks it from Grayson's pocket. It's kind of got the warmth of a teacher enforcing the rules of an exam rather than a cop enforcing the rules of evidence lockup. The box slams in the next transition. And for maybe a frame, such is the obsession of Fincher and his team. You ever so briefly make out a blue label with Mullinex on the rear of the box. It looks just like the style of label that Bart Simpson would put on a Walkman that leads him to being stuck down a well. The sequence is pure craft. There are roughly 30 setups, around 40 edits, exquisitely crafted around deeply satisfying flips of paper, percussive strings, the inner monologue of Gyllenhaal's Graysmith frantically reading through details and whispers of witness testimony fleetingly and almost subliminally leaping through his monologue.
Hey, Jack. Hey, Barbara Jack. Who's that? It's Graysmith. Some cartoonist thinks he's gonna solve the Zodiac. Well, good for him. Here's Josh Rothkopf on the overarching subtext of Zodiac, which I think interweaves so beautifully with the scene we've just seen unfold in the Vallejo police files. Then the wonderful and insightful Mariah Gates and Katie Walsh discuss Jake Gyllenhaal's performance and the resonance of Good For Him. There's a, there's a subtext to this movie, like a theme, a, sub, a thematic subtext about visual evidence that's in front of your face that still won't stand up that still yeah. won't deliver the killer to you you can have you can have the guy's face right in front of yours you can have a piece <laughs> of paper that proves it but it's still not going to work it's not good and this is the kind of thing that people especially here in america we have our hearts in our throats with worry as all these criminal cases go forward where they have video evidence but it's still not going to be enough it's not going to be enough and it's just over so, and so, again it's not enough which is just so right. all the more infuriating the idea of a transition through sound for some reason feels slightly off to me in terms of the vocabulary the grammatical vocabulary of the film like yes. i want it to be visual i want it to be like that transamerica pyramid which also has an incredible use in invasion of the body snatchers which is another fincher favorite like yes. i love the idea that he's that he's basically taking the iconography <laughs> of San Francisco and putting it all into his own film, but basically saying it's all paranoid and I love it all. It is at one hour, 55 minutes and 37 seconds in. <laughs> so at this point, you've already watched a very long movie and you've got another like that 45, 50, yeah. 50 minutes left in the, in the yep. movie. Um, but basically it's when Jake Gyllenhaal as Robert Graysmith has gone to Vallejo and he's going to look through the case files and Elias Katayas is like, you can't write anything down, you can't bring a pen, you can't do anything, you have to remember it. And so he's, you know, doing what he does and he's like running out and grabbing his uh, briefcase. And the way it's framed is beautiful. It's like, Elias Katayas comes into this, you can see what I'm doing, but they can't. I'm gonna do it because I talk with my hands. <laughs> Elias Katayas comes into the, into the screen and he's sort of in the frame there and kind of blurry in the background is this other guy in a uniform Character hasn't been presented yet. You don't know who he is. And uh, Jake Gyllenhaal runs out, grabs his briefcase, runs back. And it's still, it's all in one shot. It's a good 10, 15 second shot without a cut. It's really beautiful framing. And the guy goes, hey, who's that? And Elias Cotias tells him, um, the line is, cartoonist, he thinks he's going to solve the Zodiac. And then it cuts to the other side and you see right on this character and it's played by James Legro and he goes well good for him <laughs> and then it cuts directly to Jake Gyllenhaal grambling to write it all on a and what I love about it is a couple of things one this character's introduction is just he's just chilling and he's just doing his work and you know it's like he's like the, the late shift you know guy he's probably seen a lot of loonies <laughs> you know at night and he like James Legro is this like at one wonderful. point he was he was the indie version of Brad Pitt is what there's like a couple of articles from the 90s calling him the like indie film Brad Pitt right because he was this just beautiful interesting guy but oh he only did indie films and he's in a million of them so he has exactly two scenes this scene with this absolute perfect line delivery just perfect i <laughs> i think about that line delivery all the time and then he gets he comes back because you know they're always he, fincher always finds really interesting ways to show time mm -hmm. and the way that time has, has changes through there through the run of the film and by the time he comes back he is a full-fledged detective and he's in similar garb to what Ilias kotias's character was wearing when he was a detective and he's the one that finds the guy from the beginning mark Major. yes um and gets, you know, finds the real Zodiac. Well, the real Zodiac as purported as eight, by as Robert Graysmith. As, as eight out of 10, sure, Mike Michelle. Yeah, okay. and, and it's another small, but as you said, poignant, like, moment. And I think part of why Fincher cast an actor of this, you know, stature is you, you have to have somebody who will stand out in every scene. And I think that's kind of the greatness of the movie is that there isn't a single character that doesn't 
steal a scene there. And, you know, like the lady who says, I have to kill today. It's my birthday. <laughs> like she's so good too. And, and I post that every year on my birthday and on the Zodiac's birthday. Twice a year I post that uh, screenshot because it's, <laughs> her line delivery is also excellent. But James McGraw outside of Zodiac is in a lot of really great movies. And um, if you've seen Certain Women, he's in Certain Women mm. a couple years ago. And right, maybe. I firmly believe that he should someday win an Oscar because I've never seen a bad performance from him. No. And he chooses his roles really wisely. He's like, he's in a lot of things, but he'll, whatever it is he's doing, he does it with really strong conviction and you feel like he is the character he's playing. And, and that's why I think the line delivery in this is just, it's perfect and I love it. And, and I think what works really well in the way that Fincher sort of framed the scene is, is Elias Cotias is so deep in the shit of this yes. um, case. He is so like upset at, at, at just like everybody is, uh, their inability to, to crack it, right? And he's at a point where he's like, you know what? If this guy thinks he can do it, what, my job for me, whatever, let him try. Uh, but he's really not very positive about it. Like he's letting him do it, but it's not, he's not overjoyed, like, ugh, you know. Um, and this other guy is clearly, you know, he's earlier in his career as a police officer. It's not his, not his case. He hasn't put blood, sweat and tears into it, but he obviously has heard about it because A, he lives in Vallejo and B, everyone had heard about it at this point. Um, and so he's able to have a sort of joy about somebody attempting something in a way that these other detectives are so poisoned already by their own work on the case that, that they can't even see how good it is that somebody else is still trying. You know, they're, they're a little too jaded at this point. But it's, but at the same time, like, I think that, that Fincher casts for like the inherent, at least for like, like the inherent qualities, like he says the most decent person I can think of is Anthony Edwards. And that's exactly how Armstrong was described as being yes. like, just like a very decent human being. And so I feel like you cast Ruffalo, you get the sort of like Ruffalo charisma and you cast Jake Gyllenhaal, you get Jake Gyllenhaal being it's a little weird, bit of a weird, weirdo. Weird and quirky, yeah. Yeah. Like, I don't think Jake Gyllenhaal, I wonder if he would take offense and I, I, I genuinely say this, but he's got, when he's leaning into his natural weirdness, mm -hmm. that's all the roles that are just Oh, absolutely. Incredible. Okja. Yeah. Like anytime he's being Nightcrawler. an absolute freak. Oh God, Nightcrawler is his best performance. Yeah. Um, and like he's got, he's doing his sort of like quiet, like nerdy, like kind of interior, like in, inside of himself, but like kind of trying to come out because he's so intrigued by this and he doesn't really know how to, you know, act around people. He's lurking, he's looming. <laughs> um, he's constantly getting dunked on by the coffee guy. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, you, you get sort of these inherent, like, I, like you, ha he casts for these inherent qualities, but Elias Codius is interesting because he, I feel like is such a shapeshifter. Like he, mm sort of melds to the roles in, a, in an interesting way. What the person I noticed on my last watch is James Legros, who yes. is in, um, he's just the guy who's like, he's the the Vallejo cop who's underneath Molinax. And he's he says like, good for him or something like that about <laughs> Jake Gyllenhaal. And then he he's at the very end of the film, but James Legros is this, like this, great character actor who is one of the ex-presidents in Point Break. <laughs> like, the way Fincher sort of like threads these people in, like he like sprinkles them in. So then you you were like, oh yeah, that's him at the end. So, you know, he gives Legro that line that's sort of a throwaway, but kind of funny. And then he becomes like, oh, I took over for, for Jack Molinax at the end. <laughs> and you're like, it's all coming together. It's all coming together. All in a very, together. and it's like these really, like it's kind of a small role. It's not super important that we see him before, but it's nice that we see him before. Yes. Yeah. You know, it's... it just, it makes it feel like the whole tapestry just like fits or it's like of a piece. Like that's my favorite thing about films. Like 
I'm like, if this film feels like it's of a piece, like it, it, it makes it, I, I consider it a perfect film. If it feels yeah. like if it's of a piece. Yes. And that's obviously Zodiac. Like it just, it's all cut from one thing and everything makes sense and everything fits and it's all just working on every level. Jack. Hey, Who's that? That's Chilinol's Graysmith leaps into the nearest diner in Vallejo. It's a frantic physical download of information from his cramming, rattling around inside his mind onto different serviettes. And I have to wonder, was the handwriting exactly designed to imitate Graysmith? What was the kind of pen used? Was it the kind that Graysmith used? And how long did it take Fincher to finally decide on the right amount of scuff on that vinyl tabletop before that scene was shot. We move now into a scene that was a pickup. Originally, it was shot under the Bay Bridge, but Fincher thought it was too poetic and out of place. And instead, they reshot this scene with Graysmith and his daughter, baby Margot, in a pram snoozing. Fincher explains that Graysmith took his children to a lot of places during his investigation. He even thinks into the hardware store with Lee Allen. More on that later. That doesn't explain, though, this Graysmith's Marty McFly vest riff that's going on. But before we get into their dialogue, here's James Vanderbilt on how that scene came about and what struggles it was to make it work. In the movie, it's the scene where Graysmith goes and meets Toski and he's brought his 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 daughter with him. Yes. Um, and they're talking, it's where he, he, he basically talks about the painting party that's a terrible party, that scene. For some reason we couldn't, I'm really partial to that line, by the way. If you ask me if like stuff I'm proud of, I like that line a lot. Um, it's a terrible and line. Ruffalo just parks it, he just throws it away, it's so good. Um, uh, that scene for some reason, David just wasn't happy with. We did a version of it where they were in a car and it was raining and they were in like sitting in Graysmith's car and that didn't work. Then we shot another version of it later in production. That didn't work. And then finally, he was like, I want to do it like this. So, um, and part of it, I think, was, was uh, there's a lot of information in there. And, and I think it was, it was difficult to get all of that out in, in, in the right way. But so I think that might have been the last thing they shot. But yeah, that is, there are three different versions of that scene somewhere, in, 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 all in entirely completely different locations. Yeah, that that's such a wonderful scene too because the the note of he's he's pretending to do the right fatherly thing by taking his daughter who's having a sleepless mm-hmm. night for a walk, yeah, out into the cold and, San Francisco and, and air. And he's meeting a strange police officer to talk about. Yeah, to talk about a serial. Meeting a friend who's a police officer to talk about a serial killer, and there's your daughter. As you do. Yeah, I was on set for that one, and and it was, and it was I thought it was great, and they were great, but it definitely had a different energy than the one that's in the movie. And I think the one that's in the movie, I'm trying to think if this is, I think the thing we cracked was that Toski only had a few minutes. Yes. Like it was one of those things where he's go, he's got to get back to work. So Mark is playing, I'm kind of interested in this, but I don't have time for this. And then Graysmith gets to the stuff that, that, you know, about the phone calls and he goes, Oh wait, I do have time. Like so, I think that's the if I'm rec- if I'm remembering that was like the thing we put in the last version that kind of made it sort of click. Thank you for meeting me. We're, we're not meeting Robert. We're just two guys who happen to be sitting on the same bench at the same time. I've got five minutes. I've got to get back to the hall. Okay. Um... As far as you know, did anyone ever get in touch with Mike Michaud during your investigation and show him suspect photos? Why? Well, he's the only surviving victim who ever saw Zodiac. Without a mask. Why are you asking me? Michaud and Darlene, that's Vallejo's case. Paul Stein is mine. We've got four minutes now. Uh, Darlene Farron is being followed. 
Now, I know Molnack says that they already found this guy at George Waters, but he also said that she had a lot of admirers who would come to the restaurant where she worked. She was popular. Very. Yeah, so, so they, she and her husband, they move into their new house, and, and one night they throw this painting party. What's a painting party? It, it's a party where people come and help you paint. Sounds like a terrible party. Well, supposedly, somebody who's not Waters shows up, and Darlene is terrified of him. So you think that Darlene knew Zodiac? And if Zodiac knew Darlene, then maybe Majot knows Zodiac. Maybe, but Majot's gone. So if you want to connect Darlene to Zodiac, you're going to have to find another way. I have another way. Phone calls the night of Darlene's murder. Yeah, Zodiac called the police. No, Dave, there were four other calls. There were two to Darlene's house, one to Darlene's brother-in-law and one to Darlene's father-in-law. Just heavy breathing. They started around um, 1.30 a.m., and this is before anyone in the family knew that Darlene had been shot. This was in the Vallejo files? Yeah. God damn it. It's got to be more than just a coincidence, right? I mean, somebody doesn't just randomly prank phone call victims' entire family 90 minutes after they've been shot. So either Zodiac shoots a random couple, then he recognizes Darlene. Or Darlene was shot on purpose. Either way, Zodiac had to have known Darlene. That's good, Robert. So I can't find Joe, so, um, maybe I can find Darlene's sister. Maybe she can tell me who this mystery man is. I'll try that. I've got to go. She's very cute. Um, you know, it's interesting that you should mention Zodiac calling people at home. He did that in San Francisco once. What? Who did he call? I, I can't tell you that's privileged information. But maybe Melvin Belli could. Belli could. Ruffalo's Toski does something special here. At the beginning of the scene, he seems rough, direct, or even rude, but he has to have this balanced, uncompromising approach to protect himself, to check and recheck that Graysmith is ultimately worthy of his time. Relitigating this case again and again must be like continuing to pick at a scab. This case has the inertia of a bungee jump. In one moment, He's sick of retreading the same details over and over again with Robert. And in others, he's learning about new revelations from Vallejo case files that existed that were never shared with him. When you catch Ruffalo's Toski's jaw clenching, staring off in the distance to maintain composure, that's as good as it gets. The final exchange of the scene before the revelation of Belleye, is Toski touching Graysmith on the shoulder. It's been five minutes and he needs to get back inside. But he does take the time to redirect a fellow obsessive back to what's important. Here's the real Robert Graysmith talking about his relationship with Dave Toski and how Toski's encouragement and support nudged him towards the truth. I went to see Toski. I missed the police station. I, I went too far on the bus, came back. He's there, very friendly. Can't look in the files. They're all padlocked and everything. Um, but he'll tell me stuff. And so I, this is actually, I think I wrote about this. I said to Dave, I said, I've been reading a psychology book. And it says that a lot of times serial killers or, or psychopaths or whatever will try and help the police catch themselves. It's like a guy in Berkeley that it was part of the search party, but he was the murderer. You know, that's true. That really happened. So he says, well, yeah, I've only gotten one letter like that, and I got it yesterday. Maybe it was today. And he reaches down, and he's got a gray desk, bottom, sh- bottom drawer on his left, pulls it out, takes out a letter, and he says, uh, it says, I'm sorry, I couldn't help you catch Zodiac. And I said, who's it from? And he says, uh, Arthur Lee Allen, who just got out of prison. Now, we haven't had a letter for four years, right? And I looked at him, and for some reason, I said, he did it. Well, I went on to the, doing all this other stuff. That's the guy. And I did all this other stuff. And so finally, I get to interviewing the people in, in Vallejo, and I get in the car with uh, Molinex. And I'm just this guy, you know, I was about six feet thin. I weighed 143. I got enormously different. Uh, <laughs> but I get in the car. When the first thing that goes on the dashboard, he gives me a shifty look. And bam, there's a huge gun. He's not taking chances. And uh, so, okay, who do you think it is? It's him. The son of a bitch got away with it and so on. I saw him in the prison and blah, blah, blah. 
Um, in fact, at the time, I think it was even another prison. He may have been into something else, child molesting probably. Anyway, so then I go to visit, and these are all different trips back and forth. And I'm in my little bright orange rabbit, uh, VW, and I go to visit, uh, that was Jack Lynch, uh, John Lynch, sorry. Yes. And he's very reclusive. His house is black and dark, and we talked on the porch. Next time I went, he invites me inside, and he's saying, uh, he says, oh yeah, uh, I got Arthur Lee Allen's name. It was the first name I got in that case, one of the earliest anyway. How did you get that? I can't remember, he says, because he had a little problem with the drinking stuff. You know, it was well known, but a nice guy. And he he finally, one time he makes a slip. He says, yeah, I got it by phone. I don't remember when she called. I said, she? It was a woman that called. Okay, well, now we're getting down to it. And I have my own theories about who it was. But that got him on that. And then the other one uh, that, let's see, I had his uh, Mullinex Lynch. Oh, Lundblad. Oh, God. He's the one that really believed it was Alan. So I'm. what is so amazing about this is I was fooling around for a few years thinking it's Arthur Lee Allen. I go to the professionals. They think it's Arthur Lee Allen. I mean, it's an amazing coincidence. We all came to the same spot. And, and as George Boward says, I think he was just lucky because it's, there's a lot of stuff. They, they went into his basement. It's full of bombs. It's got guns. It's, you know, here's the thing Zodiac says, I've got bombs in my basement. So it's a sort of a switch on Psycho. Yes. His mother lives upstairs. He's living in the basement. <laughs> he should be along soon. Oh, that's all right. I, I really, I've only been waiting two hours. He's usually so. not this late. Oh, cookies. Thank you. These look great. You're here on business? I'm writing a book about the Zodiac. I remember that. I spoke to him. You mean to Mr. Belli about the case? No, to the Zodiac when he called. He said he had to kill because it was his birthday. He said it, wait, he said it was his birthday? Yes. Cut to this drastically more disheveled Graysmith in an ornate chair in the Belli home. And for a fleeting second, he kind of looks both like a mad Shakespearean king or a vagabond. Suddenly munching away on sugar cookies, he realizes that the interview with Belli he's been made to wait for is actually unfolding with the housekeeper, feeling embarrassed that her employer is late and starts sharing. Here's Bill Ryan on the incredible Jake Gyllenhaal performance as Robert Graysmith. This is one of the ways that the movie undercuts the myth- mythologizing because it, with him, it starts. It gets into the, the obsession. That's like you're, you're not going to be able to do what you want to do. You're not going to solve this. Yes. Um, and he becomes. There's the part near the end, where, um, you know, his marriage to Chloe Sevigny is falling apart, and he he and he wants at one. Again, I don't remember exactly uh, the. Maybe he's going to meet Toski. He wants to go meet Toski, and she's mad at him for once again leaving on this. It's been years at this point, and the time jumps in the movie are so jarring. You know, like yeah. you think you're getting somewhere, and then all of a sudden it cuts to a scene. And it's like one and a half years later. And it's like Jesus, and he, he just like gives her lip service with this petulant childish tone says can i leave now and it's because the audience at this point is also kind of obsessed with this but he is become this is this you're ruining your life now i mean obviously grayson has done all right for himself but um but he went from a cartoonist to uh, an editorial cartoonist to writing true crime books one after another about yeah. unsolved crimes. And, um, and I think Jalen Hall really nails the, the progression from just kind of a, a dork who uh, likes to, you know, he has a job as the, probably the least respected job <laughs> in the uh, San Francisco Chronicle, at least, of people who would be be admitted into editorial meetings to being a guy that I kind of don't want to hang out with by the, end of the, by the end of the movie, but I get it. 
I, I still understand it. Wait, you said it was his birthday? Yes. You want something to drink? Uh, when was this? Oh, so many years ago. Mr. Bella was away for Christmas. Gone for a week. Zodiac called, wanted to talk to him. I said, he is not here. He said, I have to kill. Today is my birthday. And then he hangs up. Then the letter arrives. So the call came before the letter of December 20th. And Mr. Bellet was gone for a week? He came back on Christmas. Not a good day to work. So he left on the 18th. Is that helpful? He said it was his birthday. Oh, well, you have to confirm that now, wouldn't you? How? Well, I never spoke to her, but maybe my partner did. How, how do I get a hold of him? You don't. Bill wanted out of this. As far as I'm concerned, he should stay out. How do, how do I confirm it? Well, if my partner did talk to someone from Justice, then they would have had to put that in a report. That's standard procedure. Okay. Mel Nikolai. Thank you. Goodbye. Just with a slam of the phone, there's a few concluding thoughts. Firstly, it is a real properties that Zodiac does not give us that one little ounce of any more Brian Cox as Melvin Belli, even in the background of the scene. We now cut to the phone booth scene in front of the San Francisco City Hall. It's the most direct homage to all the president's men, according to Fincher, mirroring the form and delivery of a scene where Robert Redford's Woodward talks to Deep Throat on a payphone. That scene happens at the 34th minute of all the president's men. And the differences in composition are stark. For Graysmith in the phone booth in Zodiac, San Francisco is behind him. It feels as if the very identity of San Francisco is being informed by this subterranean curse of the Zodiac Killer. Whereas Bob Woodward's conversation with Deep Throat in All the President's Men, Town Hall is staged to the left of his face. So whilst he's having a conversation with Deep Throat, there's a couple of things you can infer. The first, perhaps a tip of the hat to Mark Felt, that he is having to call inside these halls of power for an insider to give him the information. But the other overwhelming thought is that the building looms that even though he's trying to be anonymous, someone is listening. Here's Brendan Hodges with a great summation of the experience of watching Zodiac before the final word from Mr. Robert Graysmith. The sands of time and the sand keeps falling out of your hands and Graysmith keeps trying to get a hold of the case, but it keeps, you know, slipping away from him. And so by the end of the movie, you feel as though all this time has passed. And my sense of time gets so distorted when I watch Zodiac. And I think, you know, Christopher Nolan has talked a lot about how viewers have such a weird relationship with clocking time in movies. Did this movie take place over an hour, over a day, over a week? And he always says, play this trick when you screen a movie, ask your screening companions, how long did the movie take place over? And nobody would be able to agree. <laughs> now, Zodiac's a little bit different because there's these dates that were given. But my point is, is that it's so hard to really clock the passage of time in the movie because it seems so vividly long. Like, you feel as though you've aged while watching <laughs> Zodiac. You know, you feel as though you might have some gray hairs coming out. And if you went to the, the movie with, you know, a clean shaven face, you walk out with a beard or something <laughs> like that. And that I think the time capsule of the era is part of it, but also the way Fincher and, you know, the overall edit of the movie figured out how to inch people forward through this story. And it's so hard to do that. It's so hard to do that. And I think that's why it, you know, over time in particular, resonates. When I think on Zodiac, I feel like, wow, I, I lived through that movie, yeah. you know? And it's, it's an epic in the true sense of that word. It's an intimate epic, it's a crime epic, but it, it, it very much is a movie that gives you that feeling as though it was a full experience. A lake scene um, where it was Brian Hartnell. I was there when they're shooting that scene. And I'm standing next to me is Ken Narlow, who is having a, um, he's limping a little, you know, age was catching up. But one amazing thing, in fact, um, 
I'm a big Rosanna Arquette fan, unfortunately. Yeah. Uh, but the guy playing under the hood is her brother. <laughs> and I got to talk. I think it's Richmond, and I got to talk to him. What a great guy! So humble, and uh, you know. But to be there that day and to see him, it was like going back in time. I know when the first murders. I was working at the Chronicle as a political cartoonist, and as I like to say, you want to make a difference. And the idea behind it. See, a lot of cartoons today are very. They're funny. I'm sorry, if it's not dripping with blood and a tiger and, and sends you home <laughs> screaming into the night, I don't want to do the cartoon. I want it to make a difference. And the idea was, wait a minute, we've got a killer here who can draw. And he's sending maps and sketches and, and for instance, even his, his uh, um, I guess you'd call them uh, greeting cards. Yes. And he's, he's redrawing them very, very well. He is printing letters. He's got to have a light table. He has to have a, a, a drafting tool. His father, our, our suspect's father, was he's an architect. All this stuff is available. So I always thought to myself, this is a cartoonist taking on a cartoonist. Let's just turn this back on to him and just see what I can do to make sure. And this was in 1971. They said, Chronicle headline, who cares about the Zodiac? And I remember it actually made me angry. I said, I do. We're gonna, people are going to remember this case. It's going to mean something. And let's just say it doesn't get solved. People will read it down the line. Then they'll be uh, amateur sleuths, which is what I wanted and which we have. And it's it's taken on a legendary thing. But the people have found more than the police ever found. Yes. In uh, 1969, nothing was available. We you you couldn't get you were they wouldn't give you uh, police reports anything like that. I had to go department by department for ten years, picking up these reports. Like, for instance, there was the possibility that he was in Riverside. Yes. Well, apparently he was a student. And I, I have 2,000 names of people that we, I took to share with Morrell. And we checked their handwriting for the, uh, the you fill out a form, you know, to join. And uh, he said the only problem is we don't have everyone because some of those are tight. But it's that kind of work where you, you just have to build from absolute zero. And then I take it back to Inspector Toski, who became my best friend. That concludes the 19th episode of Zodiac Chronicle, Libra Part 1. Be sure to subscribe to the show so you're first to know about all upcoming episodes. And if you can't get enough, Unplugged Zodiac Sessions podcast will be available exclusively on the One Heat Minute Patreon, which is linked in our show notes. This episode of Zodiac Chronicle is research written and presented by me, Blake Howard. The music of Zodiac Chronicle is composed, produced, and performed by Chris Duffy of Los Espinas, The Duff. Our companion, I Am Not Avery, Zodiac Chronicles stickers and pins were done by the incredibly talented Amy Reed, who you can find on Instagram at, at ai.me.me or via email at amy.reed0310 at gmail.com. Robert Graysmith's Shooting Zodiac is available now from any of your major online book retailers if you are stuck in lockdown as I am. Until next time, though. Good bye. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.